Would you change us for our good and for your glory? We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I appreciate you guys leading us, team. Uh, leading together in worship is in song is a wonderful thing. It's a privilege that, as we've already heard this morning, not everybody in the world gets to share. Uh, but also hearing from God in his word is a privilege. We haven't come to hear a man, but to hear God. And so I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and this is the last sermon in our short series in this short book that we've titled Inside Out because I think that really captures the, the heart of what Malachi, the book of Malachi, is, is all about. It's how God wants to transform the hearts of his people so that he can transform the lives of his people. Sometimes we wonder, is God more interested in our behavior or is God more interested in kind of what's going on inside and in our heart? And the Bible's answer repeatedly is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's interested in both. Not just a heart for God that doesn't issue forth in behavior because that's just an empty sentimentality. Nor is he interested in just religious behavior that has no heart behind it because that's just religious dead legalism. God is interested in both a heart that is passionately pursuing him, which results in a lifestyle that is passionately following him. And as we've seen so often in this book, his people had the outward form of religion at the time this book was written, but not so much the heart behind it. And so in the book of Malachi, God has skillfully flayed his people open like a surgeon. Uh, If you've been with us these last several Sundays, I have felt so often in this book that it's, it's sort of like going under the surgeon's knife. I mean, you're, you're really trusting the skill of the person wielding the scalpel when, when they're cutting on your own body, uh, especially the closer they get to, you know, vital organs. That's, that's a scary thing, and, and it's a painful and difficult thing, although uh, a skillful surgeon can actually save a life. That's, that's really the heart of what God is trying to do in Malachi. It's a book that that shows us our faults. It shows us how God is not fooled by outward behavior. And and having kind of thus been flayed open, the the book ends, I think, kind of trying to answer this question that that I've really felt quite a bit these last couple weeks and we want to address this morning. Having thus been flayed open, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Thankfully, there is a wrap-up to this book. Uh, God does not lay us on the operating table and slice us open to show us all of the sickness inside us and then just leave us there bleeding, (laughs) right? He patches us up and he puts us back together. And that's what he does at the end of this book. We're going to see this morning um, God calling us into community together. That's where we begin uh, to to respond to his message. And then we're going to see the great hope of us, uh, of, of when we respond to that message, calling us into community and the great hope that that results in. It begins in Malachi chapter 16, verse 3, and so we're going to start this morning with the call <clears throat> into community. So if you've got your Bibles open, we'll read that together. It begins by saying that, uh, our passage this morning, by saying that those who feared the Lord then spoke with one another. Now, we're going to pause right there and just think about that phrase for a minute, because it's a loaded with meaning. We're, we're done with the six disputations of Malachi. We've talked a lot about those the last three Sundays here at Harvest. We're done with kind of the, the meat of the book. The main message has been given in this sort of parallel chiastic structure, and we've talked about all that and what it means. And so now here we are at the end, and what do we do with this? And God kind of begins kind of turning for home by showing us how people back in the time this was originally written, about the 5th century B.C., 400 or so years before the time of Jesus, how some of them, some of them actually heard God's message and said, he's right. He's right. (laughs) Everything he said about us is true. We have been flayed open and we agree with God that we are the problem as his people. God's not the problem, we're the problem. And so what did they do about it? Interestingly, the Bible goes out of its way to point out that the first thing they did about it, those who feared the Lord, they they saw that what he was saying was right and they submitted to it, they spoke with one another. It's kind of an interesting thing to point out, isn't it? Why did they speak to one another and why does that matter? Well, it matters because they were living in the midst of a spiritually shallow generation that had this kind of outward form of being religious. 
They, they, they did a lot of the religious practices. They would go to the temple. They had started up the religious sacrifices again. You recall these people had been uh, conquered by foreign nations. They had been exiled to foreign lands. And now many generations later, some of them had been allowed to return. And so they returned and they rebuilt uh, some form of a temple and, and started up the Old Testament worship practices again. And they kind of thought, hey, we're doing what God wants. But it was all outward. It was half-hearted and it was an outward show. And when that's the value system of the culture you're living in, it's very hard not to just kind of get sucked right into that and think you're doing pretty good, even if you're only doing a half-hearted job, because that's what everybody else is doing. But inwardly, their hearts were miles away from God. They had even accused God many times earlier in the book of being the one who was in the wrong. And there's a lot of parallels with most cultures throughout history. Ours is no exception. We think of modern American culture. Uh, most Americans, all these surveys tell us, although attitudes and specifics change quite a bit from, from generation to generation, it is still true in the country that we live in today that most Americans believe in God, uh, either the God of the Bible or some form of personal higher power. That is a mind and a will. Um, most Americans still say that they believe they're going to heaven when they die. They think there's something better than this life after this life, and they're pretty sure that whatever it takes to get there, they're in, the vast majority of Americans, which is interesting, even though uh, many people have never put personal faith in Jesus Christ to pay for their sins as their personal Savior, which the Bible very, very clearly says is the only way you get to heaven. Now, despite that clear teaching, most Americans still think God is there and still think they're going to heaven, even though they've largely ignored his word. It's a very similar culture in this regard to what they were dealing with even all those years ago. Ours is a day and age in which compassion is in. Spirituality is as popular as ever, even while its forms are becoming less traditional. But very few people read the Bible on its own terms take its call to repentance to heart personally and lay their sinful lives bare before a perfectly holy God and bank everything on his mercy in Christ. That's what the Bible calls us to do. But that's the culture we live in. That's the culture they lived in. As long as you're doing the outward forms, you're good. So what did these people do? These people who recognized that God was right and just doing the outward religious stuff isn't enough, what did they do? They banded together. They found each other. Uh, those who agreed with God got together and they compared notes. They talked with each other about this stuff. And this accomplished at least two things. Uh, first of all, it clarified their vision and secondly, it strengthened their resolve. Here's, here's what I mean by that. It clarified their vision because when you're, when you're in relationship with other like-minded people, if, if you're following God with all your heart, you really want to be uh, in him, in relationship with him and close to him, and you find other people who have the same passion and desire, and you start talking with each other about that, one of the things that happens is those conversations clarify our vision. It's so easy to delude ourselves sometimes into thinking we're doing exactly what God wants us to do until I'm meeting with other Christians and I go, oh, I'm noticing they never do that. They do this over here. And maybe you've had an experience, I've had this experience many times, where I'm like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> like as soon as I see somebody else pursuing God that way, I realize that's how I should have been doing it all along. But you see, if I keep myself walled off from other people, I never get those kind of checks on my thinking. I never get the examples and the encouragements and where needed even the challenges of my brothers and sisters in Christ. As these people talked with other like-minded people about their understanding of themselves and of God, their understanding of these things and the world around them sharpened. Together they saw even more clearly how Malachi was right and the different ways in which he was right. They said, we have got to repent because God is right. So it clarifies our vision. Community does. Being in relationship with other Christians does. But it also strengthens our resolve. It strengthens our resolve. When it says they got together and, and spoke with one another, this isn't referring to a one-off conversation. This is a group of people that kind of made a pact together of sorts. I'm not sure how formal it was or, or what form it took. But there's clearly this idea that like they found each other and said, let's do life together. We need one another. We need to repent and follow God together. 
because they were swimming against the current of their outwardly religious culture. And swimming upstream is always exhausting. It's exhausting. Swimming upstream in our modern culture is exhausting. And no matter how much you believe as a Christian that the things of the Bible are right and you want to follow them, and no matter how much I believe as a Christian that some of the values in my culture are not God's values, no matter how clear that is in my mind, I will have a limited ability to live out God's values and swim against the stream when I'm off on my own. But together, we go farther. Sort of like the geese that we see flying over our city some seasons of the year in their V formations. You know, and the ones I'm told, I'm no like goose expert, but the one up front is the one doing all the really hard work because he's, you know, breaking through all of the wind resistance. And then the ones kind of behind him kind of get in the slipstream a little bit and it's a little easier on them. And as I understand it, the geese will actually rotate that front spot to kind of share the load of who's going to kind of fly in the front. Uh, and, and take the, the brunt of the work at that point, and all the other geese are just kind of honking them on with their encouragement. Oh, Christians, we need to fly in V formation. We need to honk at one another. <laughs> That's being in community, taking turns in the front where it's hardest. We need to do the same. If I could just say specifically, as we kind of kind of wrapping up this book, to the members of our church, if you've not only committed your life to Christ, but you've locked arms with us through membership and said, this is my home church, then as one of your elders, let me say, not on my authority, but on the authority of Scripture, you need to be in community with other Christians here in this church. You need to be. It's more than just helpful. It's essential to us living fully for Christ over the long haul. There are no lone rangers amongst successful Christians. If I'm not in community, then no one is checking and sharpening my thinking, and no one is there when I'm in crisis. Besides all that, I'm not checking and sharpening anybody else's thinking, and I'm not there for them when they're in crisis. I've seen over and over again as a pastor how disengagement from community, pulling away from relationships in the church among Christian people is a precursor to serious sin. Ah, not always, but man, so often that it's almost a proverbial truth. Often it's a breakdown of a marriage or some other kind of serious sin where a Christian has decided that I'm just, I'm going this way. And so they know that their, their church leaders and their friends at church are going to start speaking truth into their life and saying, hey, that's, that's not what it means to follow Christ. And so just reflexively, whether they've thought about it consciously or not, they start distancing themselves. You start seeing them attend a little less often. They stop showing up to the same groups they were showing up to. And eventually, they'll even quit returning phone calls and start isolating themselves and distancing themselves from Christian friends because we know sin has to be isolated in order to thrive. I have to keep convincing myself that this is right even though I know it's wrong, but I want to pursue it, and so I have to isolate myself from community. When a Christian community is functioning well, it almost functions as an antiseptic (laughs) to sin. If the germs are going to continue to spread and grow, you have to wall yourself off from the antiseptic. And I've even had members of our church pursuing sinful courses of action where as an elder I've sought graciously to get in touch with them and they simply refuse to turn the fo- return phone calls. It's heartbreaking. I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to like beat you over the head with my Bible. I just, I, I want to I connect with you. I want to find out what's going on. I want to see where you're at. We want to help. But no, don't want it. Not interested. I used to want to listen to you. Not anymore. What changed? My sin. Don't think you're immune to this. None of us are. When those who fear the Lord find one another, there is great hope for encouragement, for clear thinking, and for long-term success together. So just before we move on, let me say very practically, if you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing all this and you're thinking like, okay, that's good, that's fine, that sounds right, whatever, I got it, I agree, but I feel disconnected. Um, maybe I'm not even sure this is my home church or maybe I kind of feel like it is but I'm not as connected as I probably should be then let me encourage you to get connected 
So many ways to do that here. That's what our small groups ministry, our community life groups are all about. If you're interested in finding one, you can fill out one of those connection cards Jerry referred to earlier or come up afterwards and talk to Pastor Drath who's leading our singing this morning. We've got people who will respond to that and get in touch with you and see if we can find a group that will fit you. You might have to make some sacrifices and change your schedule, but friends, it's worth it if you're pursuing Christ. And those actually aren't our only groups. There are several other uh, groups that we have throughout the week, a couple of men's prayer groups that meet in early mornings. Uh, We've got some women's Bible study groups. We have a set of classes on Wednesday evenings right now. There are so many ways right now to get connected. And if you're not sure where to begin, reach out to us. Give us a call at the office. Come talk to me or one of our pastors and elders. We will start finding a way to introduce you to people and get you connected. It's desperately needed by all of us. But let me also say this, last point before we move on here. Many of us are already connected. I'm looking around this room and I see dozens of of, of faces that have names attached to them that I've known for years and you've been faithful in this church for years and you're in a community life group or you're leading community life groups and you have friends and you're investing in one another and you're saying, I'm doing it. I agree with what the Bible is saying there about the importance of community and I'm doing it. So I'm gonna pray for all those people who don't have it. Well, let me challenge us just a little bit there. Especially, again, to our members, let me say, if you're already connected here, the responsibility of making sure that Harvest is a welcoming place where people can find this kind of Christian community when they're looking for it, that responsibility lies not with the elder board and not solely on the shoulders of the ministry staff, but on our entire congregation. That's us. That's on us. That's our job. Now that you know how community works and you're experiencing it, your task is to spread it, to invite other people into it, not hope that they'll be as lucky as you and find it on their own. Let me offer a challenge you might consider taking up. If you're pretty well established here relationally already at our church, in the next week, maybe before you leave the property this morning, introduce yourself to someone here that you're unfamiliar with. And don't worry about that awkward like, oh, you've been going to church here for eight years and so have I and I've never met you and now I feel weird. Ah, who cares? (laughs) That stuff doesn't matter. What matters though is saying like, I'm not sure I know who you are and I'm not sure you're connected and I care about that. So, hi. (laughs) Here's my name. What's your name? Ask them how long they've been at Harvest. Ask them if they are connected. If you're in a community life group and they're not in one, consider inviting them to yours. Or maybe just go out to coffee sometime. No huge commitment, no huge strings attached, just the the interest of investing in people and saying, if you need to connect here, I'll do my best to be a conduit. I may not be the main person to do it, but I care about it, and I want to see you get connected. But we need to move on. The community is so vital. It is so telling to me that the first thing the Bible says about those who took Malachi's message to heart is that they found one another and they talked to one another. We need the community. And good things came from that. As the passage goes on, they received a great promise of God's care and a hope for the future. We see the promise of God's care in the rest of chapter 3. We pick it up again in the middle of verse 16. It says, The Lord paid attention to them, and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God promises two things in these verses. He promises that he um, remembers and he promises that he treasures. He remembers, verse 16, that's what that's all about. God, God paid attention. When, when people who are sinners take God's word seriously and it resonates with their hearts and they say, yes, God, you're right, we're sorry, God listens. Because that's what he's looking for. He's looking for repentant, broken hearts before him. And this book of remembrance was written for him. And clearly, that's, that's a, a metaphor. It's, it's a word picture based on common practice, even in ancient uh, kingdoms back in those days. A 
Official scrolls uh, were often kept by kings. Archaeologists have dug these things up all over the, the Near East and the Middle East. Um, official records of a kingdom, including things like um, if there was one of their subjects or maybe a family in their kingdom who had supported uh, the monarch in a critical time of need and the monarch then chose to reward that you know, faithful servant, gave him a bunch of land or you know, whatever they did. And, and there were often official records written of that. Why? So that it would be remembered. You know, that king eventually dies and the next king comes along and he goes, hey, how come that family over there has such a sweet piece of land? And the scribes could go pull out the record book and say, oh, because your predecessor was really helped by their great-grandfather, and so that land was bequeathed to them. The new king could say, oh, I get it, okay. There's a commitment there, we're going to honor that. It was a way of remembering faithful service and ensuring long-term reward. That's the imagery that's being picked up here. Um, God doesn't write the names of repentant people down in a book because he's going to (laughs) forget. That's not the point. But by giving us that image, what he's saying is, I remember, I look and I see whose hearts are pursuing me, and I do remember, and every act of faithful obedience will be rewarded. Second Chronicles 16.9 says that God's eyes are roaming all over the earth, seeking those who are faithful to him so he can support them. That's the idea here. Every act of faithful Christian service matters. That's what the Bible's telling us. Everyone, even the tiny little ones that nobody else sees. It is seen by God. It's recorded in his book, as it were, it, to be recounted in the last day. Just take a couple of things that we've talked about already in the book of Malachi as examples. Every day you are tempted to bail on a hurting marriage and you choose not to because you want to honor the, the vision of marriage that God has laid out in this book. Every time you make that decision, God sees it. And he remembers it. And you have to fight the same battle the very next day. But every ounce of faithful love and service to him, you can guarantee God remembers. He knows. That's what he's saying. Every time I give financially to support my church out of my love for God, even when things are tight, every nickel, every penny, God sees and knows and remembers. Maybe nobody else does. When you're giving here at Harvest Community Church, the pastors and the elders, because of the way we've set up our system, we don't see who gives what and how much, and we've done that for a lot of good reasons. And what that means is, if you give extra at a time of real need for you out of love for God, there's probably nobody here that's going to pat you on the back and say, well done. So did it matter? It was such a little amount of money, it probably didn't make a difference and nobody knows anyway. God knows. That's what this is telling us. God knows. That hurt to give that yes, and God says, I see it and I remember. It matters to me when love for God is your motivation. The Bible tells us that God numbers every hair on our heads, that he keeps every tear that we shed tied up in his bottle And here, that he writes the name of every faithful follower in his book. These are all metaphors. They're word pictures, but they're images of something that is true. And that is God's intimate knowledge, love, and care for those who follow him no matter what. Sometimes faithful service to God seems a total waste and like nobody knows. But God says, I know. And I'm the only one who matters. So these people are promised that that they heard him and that he wrote their names down. He will remember their faithfulness, but he also promises that he will treasure them. That he will treasure them. Verse 17 says, They, these people, shall be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. For those of you familiar with your Old Testaments, you know that here at the very end of the Old Testament, that's not the first time you encounter this idea of, of Israel, the nation of Israel, being God's treasured possession or his treasured people. But what had started to happen over the course of the Old Testament was the Israelites showed themselves to be so faithless to God on the whole that it starts to become increasingly clear that just being born ethnically as an Israelite in the old days is not really what makes God really excited about you. What makes God excited about you, even in Old Testament times, is that you really take his word to heart and you love him. And the New Testament picks up on that very same theme when it talks about Christians being true Israel. Like in Romans chapter 4, where the Bible tells us that a true Israelite is not the one who has the blood of Abraham in his veins, but one who has the faith of Abraham in his heart. 
And this is good news. It means that no matter how faithless, for them back in that day, no matter how faithless their fellow Israelites had been on the whole, there was hope for them that they could be faithful. And God says, you are my treasured possession. If you love and serve and pursue me above all things. God owns everything. But he says, there are some things and some people that are my treasured possession. All people have equal value, but he says, one day I will make up for myself a family out of those who love me most versus those who rejected me, and them I will treasure. Have you ever had a treasured possession? All of us do, right? At some points. Maybe a special stuffed animal as a kid. Car. I don't know. It can be almost anything. I want to show you one of the treasured possessions in my family, and it is utterly worthless. This is a picture of it. Not the box, but the bracelet that's inside of the box. It is a bracelet that is absolutely, abjectly worthless. They are plastic little beads that are tied together by string. Now, the reason that this bracelet is a treasured possession in my family is obviously because there's a story behind it. And the short version of that story goes something like this. My daughter made this bracelet. I don't even remember how old she was. She's second, third grader. She's pretty young. Uh, not long after my mother had received a diagnosis of stage four cancer. So my daughter being who she was, she wanted to make a gift and give it to her grandma, so she did. And my mother treasured it for at least two reasons, one of which is obvious. It was a gift from her granddaughter, so it touched her very deeply. She loved it for that reason alone. But what was so interesting, of all the other nice things that were done for my mother by members of the family, this bracelet kind of kept rising to the surface for some other reasons. In my mother's, and anyone who knew my mother, this, this fits who she is. In her way of looking at it, you, you may notice there's some words on there. Some of the beads have letters on them. And the words, simply two words, it says, keep shining. That's what my daughter gave grandma. Keep shining. Now my mom, in her way of thinking about that kind of stuff, was really struck by that. And she said this often to anybody who would listen to all of us multiple times. She said, you know, the, the natural phrase I would think about would be, keep smiling. It's like if she'd made me a bracelet that said, keep smiling, I would have been totally unsurprised by that. Like that would be the normal thing you would think to tell somebody. But it really struck her that she chose this kind of slightly more unusual phrase, keep shining. And at a time when my mother was desperate to cling to real solid meaning, she saw great meaning in that. Her way of describing it, she said, keep smiling seems to imply you just plaster a plastic smile over your face and pretend everything is fine because I love God and he'll get me through this when you're dying inside, literally and emotionally. But she said, and that, that's fake and I don't, I don't want to do that. But to her, keep shining implied something from deep down within that shines out despite the cancer, something even deeper than cancer. And that's what she aspired to. She went deep with Jesus in some very dark years before passing away five and a half years ago. And she would always refer back to this phrase, keep shining. There's actually some practical benefit to this otherwise worthless bracelet as well. Um, one more little anecdote to the story. There were some treatments that she had. I, I don't now remember what they were, but she had to go to a hospital or something to get some treatments and was not allowed to wear any metal at all, including gold or so, like no jewelry. It was all banned. It's hard enough to be a lady who's battling cancer and not looking or feeling your best, and now you can't even put on a simple gold chain, you know? <laughs> nope, sorry, strip it all down. No jewelry whatsoever. But there's no metal in that bracelet. It's plastic and string, so she could wear it. So every time she went into one of those treatments, this was the one piece of jewelry she wore. My mother treasured it so much that it's become a treasured possession to all of us. And after she passed away and some of her clothes and real jewelry that actually has value <laughs> was being talked about where it was going to go, everybody realized the one people cared about the most, you could get a diamond somewhere else, whatever. Somebody take the diamond. This bracelet needs to go back to my daughter. She took this picture for me just last week. It's sitting on a desk in her apartment down at school where she is, kept in that priceless little display case because it's treasured possession of us. If you found it on the street, you'd probably throw it away. You'd have every right to. It's worthless, but not to us. That's a treasured possession. This is what God is saying. 
when I look at you, I can look at you that way, that, that, that my family looks at this bracelet. You will be treasured to me. I, I own everything, but you will be my treasured possession if you recognize that I'm right and you repent and you come to me with an open heart. So there's the promise that they will uh, be heard by him and remembered and that they will be treasured by him. Point is, you can know for absolute certain that no matter what it costs you to faithfully follow Christ to the full in the midst of a generation that seeks to increasingly tame and privatize religious faith, even the smallest costs are seen by God. They will be remembered and rewarded by God. And they will lead to you being part of the treasured possession of God Almighty above. That's a powerful hope. That's a powerful hope. And it will culminate one day. This passage lands in looking ahead to the great day of the Lord, as the Old Testament calls it, repeatedly, when all this will happen. We already saw that at the end of verse 17, when he says, I will spare... um, a person who's part of my treasured possession as a man spares his own son. Spare him from what? Well, spare him from from judgment. That's kind of the last main point that the Bible goes into here. Verse 18 down through chapter 4, verse 3. It was a weird place to put a chapter break, by the way, but there it is. Once more, chapter 3, verse 18. You shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out like a calf leaping from the stall. I have no idea what a calf looks like when it leaps from a stall, because I'm not a rancher, but apparently they're really excited, right? (laughs) And he says, think of that picture. What he's really saying here is that there's an ultimate end to all of, all of, all of this. Like it, it's it's going to be over someday. And that day, it's either going to be good news, it's going to be really bad news. For those who play at religion or reject God altogether, judgment is pictured as a fire that burns, even down to the very root of a person's life. It will burn so bright he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, that it will leave them neither branch nor root. This is utter and complete judgment, total destruction. We will all stand before God one day and give an account. And as Malachi has made so vividly clear, God is not fooled by outward religious appearances or vague platitudes about how I believe in him. His judgment burns away all facades. It penetrates the shield wall of excuses. It blows away the thick, hazy fog of rationalizations that we love to cloak ourselves in so that the real us isn't laid bare to see, but God sees it. And he blows it away so that there's nothing left but sharp focus and clear, vivid, real-life relief of my heart and whether or not it loved God or lived for myself. Think back on the issues that have come up during this series. Our time and our our investments in pursuing God. Do we let our work or our sports or our hobbies supplant God and church in our lives? If all the haze is blown away, what is the reality? When I look at my schedule, what does it say about what I'm pursuing in life? Or maybe our money. Do we spend on ourselves or give God the leftovers? Or our marriages, do we see them as for us rather than for him? The other topic that came up at the end of chapter 3 last week, the way that we treat foreigners and those that are other than us when they're in our place and we have a position of power over them, do we abuse that or do we care for them? The point is don't let your current pain or the siren song of the world Make your heart stubborn and resistant to God's clear and repeated calls in the Bible to repentance. Because one day, we will give an account. That's a frightening and sobering thought, isn't it? But it's there. It's in the scriptures. We have to be honest with it. This is God's clear message. 
But fortunately, it's not his only message, because as is so often the case in the Bible, when he gives us the hard truth, he also bundles it with tremendous hope because he's a loving and merciful God, although holy and just. That is a sobering message for those who refuse to repent and love God from the heart. But verse 2, chapter 4, had said it's going to actually be the exact same day, is going to actually look and feel and be experienced very differently by those who are following God with a whole heart. And there's hope that that can be you, and there's hope that that can be me. And notice how he even changes the imagery a little bit. In verse 1, he pictures the day of judgment as this fire that just like burns it all up so that there's nothing left. But in verse 2, the image shifts a little bit. It's still a fire, but now it's not burning up my life. It's actually hanging in the sky. The fire of judgment, pictured sort of as a ravenous wildfire in verse 1, is now pictured as a rising sun in verse 2. Still a fire, but a very different image. After a long, cold, dark, and difficult night, you long for the dawn to come, do you not? You long to see light, to see the warmth of the sun, to hear the birds singing. Everything in creation seems to wait for the morning to come. And he says, that's how it is for those who fear my name. As we walk through life in this world, which is long and cold and dark and difficult, if you're swimming upstream against the current of the culture and seeking to pursue God together with other Christians, it's hard, it's cold, and it's dark. But there's a great hope at the end of it that one day the sun will rise. The same judgment that is a fire to those unwilling to repent is a sun shining brightly that hope is finally here and real life is about to begin. It was worth it. And that's what he wants his people to read. You can come see that day of the Lord like like a sunrise. You can come leaping like a calf out of the stall. You will find life indeed in that day. That's the great hope of those who follow Christ. Just as the first image pointed to totality of judgment, this points to a totality of life completely. I'm not sure anybody could say it more creatively than C.S. Lewis did in his last of the Narnia novels. Seven novels, many of you are familiar with them. And as the characters are, are standing at the end of the last story on heaven's literal doorstep, ready to enter in and start to experience eternal life, Lewis concludes the story this way. Let me just read a brief quote from him. He says, for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I get choked up every time I read that. Because <laughs> that's the hope that the scripture is putting before us. Yes, God in this book has sort of flayed us open as a surgeon on the table, but he's done it to bring healing. And he's seeking to bind us up with the hope. It's been a hard-hitting series. Um, Malachi is a book with a creative structure, a nailish right between the eyes message, but also a perspective-shifting eternal hope. And I want to wrap it up by letting the Bible continue to shape our thinking. So we're going to end the way Malachi ends with two kind of summary exhortations. The last two verses of this book kind of capture the whole essence of the message. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, for all Israel. And then in verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He finishes with two statements. Follow God's commands fully and rely on God's Savior completely. There's a couple brief comments about each of those as we wrap up this series. First, follow God's commands fully, verse 4. Uh, for them at that stage in history, that meant go back to the law of Moses that you find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the, the end of the book of Exodus and, and do all of that stuff, not just a half-hearted way you've been doing it. Like, go follow my law. Do what I've said. 
And it's interesting how the New Testament picks up that same exhortation. Christ has fulfilled that law for us. We no longer need to follow every details of that law the way it was laid out. That's why, thank God, we don't bring animals here on Sunday morning and like cut their throats and have a wonderful sacrifice service. And yet, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The details have changed. The, uh, have changed. the issue is the same. He's calling us to a life of obedience, first of all. Keep all of my commandments. What are all Jesus' commandments? Well, a great place to start is with his final commandment to his church. We call it the Great Commission, the end of Matthew chapter 28. Go, he says to his disciples, and make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, just as you are striving to obey everything I've commanded you and know that I will be with you to the very end. That's his heart for us. That's actually his command to us. If you're a Christian here this morning, that's not kind of an ideal, sort of like he hopes we'll get there someday statement. It's not a you should consider it suggestion. It's a command. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I need to make disciples. Follow God's commands fully. How do I do that? Well, fortunately, it's actually pretty straightforward. It's not very complicated. It means we intentionally pursue relationships with one another wherein we seek to help one another follow Jesus better. And if you want a more detailed explanation or some really practical, like, how does that work? It's pretty important to us at Harvest that we equip all of our members to do that. One of the ways we're doing that is a class we have on how to disciple somebody. It's going on right now, Wednesday nights. Started a couple weeks ago. There's still several Wednesdays to go. If you haven't been there, just jump in. It's totally fine to jump in right now. But if you want to know, like, I don't even know what that means. How could I do that as a Christian? We will show you. This is how you do it. It's simple, and you're up to the task. Let us show you how. Part of how we're equipping each one of our members to follow Jesus' commands. And by the way, just a little teaser, we're working right now for the spring after Easter in um, April and May on a shorter series, probably about six weeks long on Wednesday nights, where we will talk about how to have Jesus conversations with people that don't know him. Evangelism, that's another part of making disciples, helping people become followers of Jesus in the first place, as well as grow as followers of Jesus once they are. That's so intimidating for some of us. It's so awkward and weird. It is for me often, but it doesn't have to be that big a deal. We're going to show you how to do that on Wednesday nights. So Christian, do the things of this world, your time, your money, your family, your job, your marriage, do they consume you? such that making disciples is not the driving ambition of your life? Many times I have to look at myself and say, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm excited about and consumed with a lot of things right now, and how I can make more disciples is not tops of the list. We just need to be honest with God and with one another about that. When it comes to how we spend our time and our money and how we behave in our marriages, are we taking our cues from a culture around us that does not have the infinite worth of God as its driving ambition? We need to repent of the ways in which we let the world around us shape our lives and heed this call to live a life fully for Jesus. So the first of the two summary commands is to follow God's commands fully. Let's get about making disciples. If you don't know what that means, let's start talking about it and let's do it together. But secondly, consistent with this book, there's the command to rely on God's Savior completely. Not just to create a, a performance life where I'm doing all of the right things that the Bible wants me to do, but inside, I'm not driven by a heart that loves God above all other things. Nor am I called to just go sit in the closet and wait until my heart treasures God above all things before I get up and do something. As Christians, we're called to both follow God's commands fully, but also rely on His Savior completely completely. Because the truth is, none of us here, myself the foremost, have a heart that values Jesus as highly as he should be valued. And we need his help with that. Here in verse 5, um, Malachi prophesies the same as he did at the beginning of chapter 3, that a special prophet would one day come uh, and have an Elijah-like ministry. When Malachi was written, the prophet Elijah had already lived and well, actually, he didn't die. He got to go to heaven without dying, which was pretty cool. But anyway, he had, he had already come and gone on history's stage. And he says, well, in the future, there's going to be another prophet, an Elijah-like prophet, who is going to bring about real transformation in the hearts of God's people. 
Now, fortunately, we live at a time that's much later, and we can look back from the perspective on the, of the New Testament and see what that was all about. And Jesus makes it very clear that that Elijah-like prophet was John the Baptist, the one who came and paved the way for Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. This is all pointing to when God sends his Savior to change the hearts of his people. He wants to transform us from the inside out. He wants both behavior and heart attitude that reflect him, a a heart-driven lifestyle full of obedience. But to get that, we need a new heart because I don't have it within me any more than any of these people did back then to just live it all for God. I got too much other stuff going on. I'm too into my own world. I can only give so much. So God says, that's right, you can That's why I've given you a community to do life with, and that's why I've put my spirit in you to give you a new heart that is bigger and is more spirit-empowered than you are on your own. That's where Jesus comes in. You see, he left heaven to become a man, and he lived perfectly so that we wouldn't have to do what we can't do anyway, which is fully live for God. He did that for us. And then he died on the cross, brutally so that we wouldn't have to and then he rose from the dead so that you and i can have the promise of eternal life as well that's the message of the gospel that's what this is all pointing to and that is his infinite worth It's the most beautiful thing there is, who God is as shown in Christ. There is nothing in the universe more beautiful, more worthy of your affection and your attention than that. But if we're honest, we see a lot of things as more beautiful and get more excited about a lot of other stuff. We need to pray that God would give us the hearts to see things the way they really are. To see him as the most true and lovely and valuable thing in the world. Because when your heart gets excited about who God is, your lifestyle naturally follows. That's how God designed us. And so, yes, we need to be committed to living fully for him, but we need, in order to do that, to have a heart that sees the infinite worth of God as ultimately beautiful. And I can't make my heart do that. Only God can. We need to repent of our sin, rely on Christ's sacrificial death and perfect life, both done in our place, and live in the hope of the future that that secures for us. And friends, we need to renew ourselves in those truths every day by reading God's word, by praying for that renewed heart, by connecting with our brothers and sisters in Christ and spurring one another on and letting them spur us along together as a church as we learn to live for Christ fully and rely on him completely. That's God's plan. And it's in this way we will develop hearts that see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful. And that will issue forth in a lifestyle following his commands. It's a special morning. This is our our normal communion Sunday. And we're going to enter into a time of receiving the Lord's Supper right now. What a great way to respond not only to this sermon, but this whole book of Malachi that has laid us open but sought to give us hope. Where do you see yourself in the pages of this book? I want to encourage us to think about that for the next few moments together as we respond as a church in the act of communion. If you're not super familiar with what communion is, this is a um, symbolic action that Jesus commanded his followers to take the night before he died. He set the stage, he gathered his men around him, broke bread and passed it around and says, this is my body broken for you, eat it in memory of me. And then he passed around a cup of wine and, and he took and he said, this is like my blood that's about to be shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. And he says, when I'm gone, I want you to do this regularly so that you will remember my life and my death on your behalf. And so when we come forward, as we will in just a few moments, and we take this piece of bread and dip it in the cup and eat it, what we are doing by by doing, what we're saying by doing that is that Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection is what gives me hope. We're saying, I'm a Christian, and I've banked everything on Christ as my Savior. And so here's how we do this. Uh, In a few minutes, just a couple minutes, the worship team is going to come up, and they'll be here. And we're going to give ourselves just a time of kind of quiet reflection, maybe about a minute. Um, Just be some soft music playing in the background. And it'll be just a time to think and to process. I encourage you to just pray silently where you're at and ask yourself, where, where do you see yourself in the pages of the book of Malachi? 
Let's do business with God, just silently. Just, just, if he's bringing up a conviction of sin, just pray silently where you're at. God can hear you without even the verbal words. And confess that to him. And ask for a heart that sees him as more valuable and will live more fully from him, uh, for him. And then Pastor Drath will give us the cue. And we'll start singing congregationally. And during that time, we're going to invite you to come to one of the communion tables. Um, there's a double table here and two over on the sides. There's also two in the back. So you can just find the table that's closest to you. They're all the same. doesn't matter which one you go to. And if you are a Christian, we invite you to the table of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, you can stay in your seat. That's totally fine. That's not weird. That totally works here. Because when you're participating in communion, you're announcing that your life is banked on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And as you come to the communion table, recognize that as you take the piece of bread and dip it in the cup and eat it, Jesus Christ has died for my heart that does not love him as well as it should and has died for my lifestyle that does not line up with his as well as it should. And he's died to change both to make us a holy people. And we receive as his people gladly his sacrifice to his glory. And then we'll finish our service. That's an act of worship as we take communion together. We'll finish our service by singing together. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up right now and I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna enter our time of reflection and communion and song. God, thank you so much for the surgeon's table. (laughs) Lord, it hurts sometimes. This has been a challenging series of sermons to preach and to study, a challenging book to read and to hear because you do flay us open, and that is a frightening and revealing experience, but it's also good. It's good because, like a surgeon, you do not cut us open for our destruction. You cut us open to call us to repentance, to cure us from the disease of sin that plagues us. And you give us the hope of your eternal love that you would die for us and the promise that we can be part of your treasured possession if we will come repentant and broken before you and receive your grace. I pray that we would do that right now and that the grace that you show us in the cross would so transform our affections as members of this church, God, that it would issue forth in lives that are totally countercultural in all the right ways, lifestyles that delight to live for you in every area of life. God, where we have failed, I pray that you would convince us deeply that our failure is to be brought to you and you have mercy and you can also heal us from it and advance us beyond it, that our worst sins and our deepest failures are not our destiny or our future or our identity, but that your cleansing grace and being part of your treasured people is what is before us at your cost. So God, I pray that you turn the hearts of your people more deeply towards you now. Let's take a few moments and just reflect silently. What do you need to do business with God? Just silently in your seat there, confess your sins to him and prepare to come and celebrate his life and his death, lived and died in our place.